Jeff and I are very excited to share our interview with Dr. Melissa Beers for Brain Bios episode number four. Dr. Beers is an integral component to instruction in the psychology department at The Ohio State University in Columbus, where I met her. One of her many roles at OSU is as the Director of Introduction to Psychology, a large enrollment course taught primarily by graduate students. In that role, Dr. Beers has taught roughly 250 graduate students how to teach, and over 35,000 undergraduates have taken Introduction to Psychology under her direction. Missy, as she is known to her friends and colleagues, has been increasingly involved in national efforts to support training and development of graduate student teachers as well. Recently, she was named to the steering committee for APA's Introductory Psychology Initiative, and she's also co-chair of the subgroup working on recommendations for training and supporting teachers of Introduction to Psychology. Here we skipped our usual origin story with Missy because she shared that background on another podcast called Psych Sessions. It's episode 16, and we recommend you listen to it. Where the heart of the Psych Sessions podcast is teaching psychology, our goal with the Brain Bios podcast is less focused on teaching specifically. We aim to cast a wider net discussing many of the topics related to careers in psychology and neuroscience, of which teaching is, of course, one. We specifically wanted to interview Missy because she provides a great deal of useful reflection, advice, and resources for graduate students and faculty members who are just beginning their teaching careers. To begin this interview, I asked Missy to describe the teacher training program she runs at Ohio State. Can you tell us what your program is? I would love to. Okay. Yeah. So I... I think I have the best job at Ohio State University. I'm pretty confident that you I do. You probably do. I think I do. <laughs> um, so I was hired to direct Intro Psych here at Ohio State, which is a large general education course that is taught by graduate instructors. So we have a team of like 27 or 28 graduate student instructors that will teach um, classes of about – somewhere between 50 to 70 students uh, per section. And they teach two classes a year, um, so typically one in the fall and one in the spring. Um, and my job is to oversee curriculum and instruction in this program and to support the instructors, to help them be prepared for this teaching assignment, to support them through their teaching assignment, to help advance their teaching, um, and to help to sort of oversee assessment and um, learning outcomes. Okay, and you start doing that in the summer, right? That's right. So one of the things that I inherited um, was a class that was developed by a couple of uh, my former predecessors uh, that they developed in to be like a, a summer seminar and practicum in the teaching of psychology. And it was originally like a, like a short seminar followed by a practicum and um, it was intended to basically ha help the students have their lectures written before the, they started classes, right? So they would be coming in with their materials prepared. Um, and so over the years, that's been a class that I've continued to develop and enrich. And so it's a, now it's a 12-week summer course, and it's an integrated seminar and practicum. And we prepare students to teach not only intro psych, but we give them an opportunity to prepare for whatever class they're going to be teaching. And there are several different classes that students teach here. Okay, so what does that look like? What the how seminar? Do you, yeah, how do you teach someone to get prepared for a class? Isn't that great? Well, 
So I think one of the things I do want to say that I'm really fortunate is that we have this great teaching center here. We have the University Center for the Advancement of Teaching. And when and when I first took this job and I got this responsibility, I reached out to them and I said, well, yeah, help. <laughs> right. Nobody had ever really trained me to teach. Right. I, they, I know, and I, I didn't, now I'm going to be helping other people train to teach. You know, I think there's, oh, you just, you need some guidance for that. So I talked to them about it and they had been involved and consulted a bit with the original class. And so they helped me kind of think through how to change the current class. But some of those guiding principles, there's some guiding principles that I think are really important. And one is, I can't tell you how to teach your class. I can show you the evidence that certain things are effective for student learning. I can show you that. I can connect you with peers that can help you see examples and, and you know, resources and can also help you understand what works in this teaching context. And I can support you and I can encourage you and I can answer your questions. But I can't tell you how to teach. Why is that? Why can't you tell someone how to teach? Because there's a personality element? Well, think about the model in your own class, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, you can lecture at your students all day long, but at some point they have to apply that information for themselves. I mean, I don't think that teaching undergraduate students is any different than teaching graduate students, right? I mean, you have to give them the opportunity to interact with the ideas and to figure it out for themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think more really than any other class, it's up to them. Uh, to figure out how to use the information that we make available. So we have um, the seminar component that we have now in the class. Um, We all meet together. So I have usually people prepping at least two, sometimes three or four different classes. And we all get together to talk about sort of general principles of teaching. So backwards design, um, classroom management, organization in your class, um, just, you know, policies, the university, the culture that you're teaching in, um, the general education, the goals and objectives for a course, how do you effectively lecture, what is active learning and how, are, how do you do it, assessing, how do you assess student learning, why do you do it. Um, and so these are things that are relevant to everybody, right? And then you go into a practicum that's just the people in the class that you're preparing and it's led by a senior instructor for that class who's you know, kind of a mentor, uh, and that person helps you think about how do how does this play out in this particular class, and also what are some of the particulars and nuances of teaching certain topics. So, at the end of the summer, they'll have made a lot of resources for their classes. At least half the class, at least half the course, they will have thought through their teaching plan, and they have made course materials, and they've designed some, they've designed their syllabi, um, you know, they've done all kinds of prep for that, and they've got, and we've given them feedback. So we've given them feedback, so we can look at their materials and say, oh, this is a great lecture, but you have got so much content. We need, where can you cut some of the content? This is going to take you two weeks to give this, (laughs) this content. Where can we help you cut back? And so we know now how to anticipate some of those rookie mistakes that people make when they first start, and we can kind of guide them and give them some feedback to help them. Now, they still have to – I think they still have to uncover some of these things for themselves. I mean, they mm-hmm. you sort of – some right. things you have to experience. Like, I can't just tell you it's going to happen. You have to – you can – maybe I can head off some problems that way, but you have to have some – you know, you have to have the experience that helps you figure it out. So I try to create the environment to give you the space to work some of that out in the summer. And then it doesn't stop there. That's the other thing, especially for intro. That's not the end. And so 
I also believe that you can't just turn somebody loose and say, yeah, okay, right. go be a teacher now. Um, you know, we have this in the intro especially, and I think it's because of the daunting nature of teaching an introductory class in a discipline like psychology that's just so vast. We have a lot of guidance and, sh- and help and resources over the year, and we have some standardized elements. So you don't have to make all of the decisions about your class the first time you teach it. Right, you don't that would have be so to. hard. Some things are determined for you. Now, maybe that works for you. Maybe when you teach it, you'll make different choices. But we think through these things for the good of the students and the good of the grad students. And also, that's the other thing. I hardly make any individual decisions in this class, in this course. I have two graduate coordinators, and we work with the, we work with a team of graduate students on committees on everything. Um, and they are leading. They're, it's, it's really TA-led. What are some examples of the committees that you work together on? What do you oh, assessment. We have a, you know, an assessment coordinator that's a graduate student that works with me. Um, and you know, we're thinking about the assessment results and looking at them and talking about what do we need to do. Um, we have uh, a textbook selection committee. So when we review textbooks, we talk about what's important. We talk about um, how we uh, are going to choose a book. We review the book as a committee. Um, actually, as a course, the course every instructor votes on the textbook that we select. We have a set of criteria. We do a thorough review. Um, actually, w- real quick, what do you look for in a textbook? Oh, that is okay. another podcast. <laughs> okay, uh, <laughs> I thought it might be a little long. <laughs> we have a set of criteria that we've been using for a long time, and um, part of it is our the fit with our course culture, right? So we have very clear gen ed um, requirements. Uh, you know, we are obligated to meet for our students because most of the students, like, we have 2,000 students right now, and probably 1,600 of those students are never going to take another psychology class. They are not psychology majors. They are going into other careers. And so we're so lucky that we have this opportunity with them, right, to help them understand psychology as a discipline and science of psychology and how, how they can apply this information to their own personal and professional life. That's the gen ed, right? Right. Um, but we have this social diversity component to understand, you know, the pluralistic nature of society. And then we also have this social science um, understanding how we do research. Why is psychology empirical? Uh, what does that mean? So we look for books that support both of those objectives really well. And it's kind of hard to find <laughs> books that right. fit both of those bills. Right. Um, we look for books that are current in research. We look for books that have um, appropriate pedagogical kinds of supports that aren't either too much or too little. Um, we look for books that are, have a good narrative that are engaging to read. And so we do this review. And then at the, at the end, we really talk about price for students. And mm-hmm. so we work with publishers to arrive at a price that is really reasonable. Um, and I think I've also learned that you, know, you can work with your publishers to, to come up with a, an affordable cost for a high-quality textbook. Right. Um, you know, I, really, I also believe in OER. We have some courses that I work with that have OER. What's um, OER? Open educational resources. So we free. Act free. Yeah, it's free. They come with their own challenges from an instructional standpoint, but um, they the students certainly do appreciate, um, when possible, um, having free open source or open source resources, online kinds of articles and things like that. Okay, let me back you up for a second. You were saying that you were helping people avoid rookie mistakes, like yes. having too much content. I'm wondering if you could name a couple other 
mm-hmm. common mistakes that you see people making? Loading your class with too much content the first time out, I think, is the biggest one. Okay. It's funny. Almost everyone I talk to can relate to yeah, this. I did can that. you relate to that? Yeah. I think it's it's kind of something that you. Um, I'd like to say maybe it's a developmental kind of a milestone. I don't know. But but uh, I think the first time out, you have a hard time anticipating what a student can reasonably consume and, and, and produce. And so that's where I think having some mentorship and guidance and help, help someone helping you mm-hmm. um, figure that out is really valuable. <laughs> but, but, yeah, that's the number one rookie mistake. The number one rookie mistake is course stuffing, I like to call right, it, just right. like loading everything. And yeah. I think also legitimately part of that comes from being excited to teach for the first time right. because, like, now you get to – say you could share all of the stuff that you love with someone else you want to get people excited about it so it's sort of like how do you whittle that down you want to talk about everything i think there is a lot of excitement well and i think that at least my, my the other rookie mistake i made was rate but oh because, of, because i'm trying to cram yes. in so much it's about a four thousand miles an hour at uh, the speed of light yeah communicating that excitement and <laughs> Oh, don't stop to ask a question, for goodness sake. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. my, no. No, 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 no. Right? I mean. We won't get be, through it. I, ha- I have. And the other thing is this pressure. I have to get through all this content. Yeah, right. right. And so I think this is also something that I really see this kind of arc or trajectory. And it's a really interesting thing to watch in the graduate students because there's this, there's this at the beginning of teaching, it's this feeling that teaching is my responsibility. Mm. I am the teacher, and I teach. And then at some point, (laughs) there becomes a shift where you realize that no matter what you do, it's up to the student to learn. Right. And so then you realize, oh, it's really not about me at all. I mean, I'm to here. I'm leading this experience, but I'm making opportunities available for for those students. And then there's this shift in perspective that I can see when it happens. When you stop thinking about what am I going to do in class today? And you start thinking, what are my students going to do in class today? Mm-hmm. That's a huge shift mm-hmm. because, number one, it takes a lot of pressure off you to know everything, to be the expert on everything. And that's a trap I call the know-it-all trap, right? Like mm-hmm. the feeling you have to know everything. Right. Um, the course stuffing is the first trap, right? Mm-hmm. We're lured into that trap. The second one, I think, is the I have to know everything. I have to be the expert on everything. It's teaching is all up to me. Okay, this is really interesting because as we were talking about this, I'm thinking about the two moments that were pretty shocking for me when I was in graduate school and I was thinking about teaching, Mm -hmm, okay? mm -hmm. So one of them, I think, was like this know-it-all trip where I was a TA for a class and I sat through the lectures. And at some point during the semester, the faculty member said, you know, do you feel like you're ready for teaching? Or he asked me some question about reflecting on my ability to lead the recitation sections, I think they were, at Iowa. And I said, no, because you have all of these personal stories or anecdotes that you augment the material with, and I don't have anything. I looked at this person. I was probably 23, and I said, I have no life stories. (laughs) And he was like, yes, you do. You just don't – you haven't thought about them in this way. So I think it is this – Oh, I, I have nothing to offer. Yeah. And realizing that you have a lot to offer is kind of what you're – Yeah, I think that's true. Um, and I think that's part of, part of the experience of being a graduate student, right? I mean, part of being a graduate student is questioning everything. Yeah. You know, that's sort of the, 
you're sort of indoctrinated into this way of thinking about just questioning everything and um, and it's a very difficult I'm very mindful always of how difficult of a time it is it was a difficult time for me I think it's just a time of great uncertainty yeah. for many graduate students you're sort of figuring all this out just in terms of your professional career where you're going to go your research there's so many questions The analogy I like to use is graduate school. So undergraduate, when you're in that undergraduate program, you're taking all these classes and you're doing all these things and we're sort of molding you like clay. Mm -hmm. And when you graduate undergrad, you're sort of molded into a certain way of being. And then you come to grad school. And you know what we do? We put you in the kiln. We fire you. Right? In this, it's very uncomfortable in the kiln. It's very intense. <laughs> and grad school is a period of intense scrutiny. Yeah. Everything you do is being held to this high level of scrutiny and intensity and rigor, much more so than ever before. And it's, a re- it's intense, right? It's hot. It's uncomfortable in there. And, you know, uh, and not uh, more than one graduate student may uh, have a crack while they're in there. You know, you develop a crack. You don't necessarily always emerge intact on the other side. Um, it's, a, it's a very stressful process. But then when you do come out on the other side, you're really transformed, right? You're very different than when you started the process in very, very tangible ways, very concrete ways. So, so I'm very mindful of that always. And the, I think that also colors your experience teaching as a graduate student. Yeah. Because there's some uncertainty. There's that imposter, impostery feeling that yeah. you know, yeah. kind of uh, um, pervades some teaching. And then there's also... I think this kind of self-discovery about how very different you are as a student than many of the students that you teach. Yes. Okay, the other story that I wanted to bring up about when I was a graduate student learning how to teach was that I went to Iowa, I was a TA, and then I went to a conference and I saw my my undergrad professors from Purdue at this conference and I adored them and they were saying, how do you like Iowa? And I said, it's a terrible school. I uh, teach these recitation sections, and you will not believe it, but there are students in the back reading the newspaper. And they said, oh. Ashley, <laughs> there were people in your classes right. reading the newspaper, you but were you were in the front row, you big dork, <laughs> and you did not know that they were there. Right. So it's this, it is this issue of if you're pursuing your PhD, you were a kind of a particular type of student. Yeah. And now you're tasked with reaching the entire classroom. And honestly, my my some of my favorite experiences were absolutely with students who are not like me. Yes. Right. So how do you how do you broach this issue? Oh well, that's exactly. I think we tell them very directly. Be prepared. You're going to encounter students who are very different from yourself. And I actually almost think it's kind of nice to encounter that in a gen ed class because you. you you can see, you can expect that, right? You, mm-hmm. you can see, like when you know that the students are, um, you know, coming from different majors, you right. kind of understand. Oh, I have this is part of my job to make it. But I still think that certainly is, there is a lot of a surprise. Right. <laughs> Many surprised um, people teaching for the first time because yeah, especially to get into a program like Ohio State, where, you know, we've got students who are really exceptional undergraduate students. Right. And. I think just, again, it's a kind of an appreciation of diversity, right? Students are very diverse. You're going to have students who have many diverse qualities and many diverse goals. And so understanding and appreciating that is, and, you know, kind of suspending your assumptions about what students are like. Because this is the other thing, right? This trap of, like, I'm going to teach the way I learn. Right, yeah. This is what works for me, so I'm going to teach this way. And I 
I think even when I approached teaching graduate students as a teaching mentor, I was like, well, here's what I do, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh, see, here's what I do as a model, thinking this was a helpful model. Um, that's not how people learn to teach. I mean, you have to see multiple models, right? And ultimately, it's about self-discovery and, and uncovering for yourself what works for you in the class that you're teaching, in the context in which you're teaching, um, in with your idiosyncratic experiences. Right. You know, you those things all have to come together for you. So there's no formula for doing it. But you have to have – I think you can have an environment that's sort of rich with – is fertile and cultivates that kind of, of approach. And, and I really also believe be, being mindful of that, that it's a period of self-discovery for a person finding their their teaching persona, I guess, for lack of a better word. And because it's, it's occurring in the context of this other kind of major life, um, tumultuous life experience, I think it's also extremely important to be kind. Yeah. And to be developmental and supportive and and encouraging because I mean did you get a lot of encouragement during your first time teaching no did you get a lot of people who pointed out all the things you did well no so I think that's we're so critical on ourselves and it's also part of this kiln we're just being so critical and harsh of ourselves my main goal when I go and do an observation is to find and point out all of the things that I see that person doing right all of the things that are impressive, all of the things that are working really well. So you can do more of those things. Do you observe everyone who's in this program? I observe every graduate student teaching intro psych at least one time in the fall, and then I'll often go back again in the spring. Um, And I do that for a couple of reasons. One, because I think it's really silly that we do so much teaching with our doors closed Mm -hmm. in higher education. We're all in our own little bubbles, right? How do you know what works if you don't go see it in other people? How do you know what you're doing is effective if you don't get somebody to come in and give you some perspective on that? Um, So I really encourage uh, also our our graduate students to see one another teach too. And so I will say when I'm saying, oh, Ashley, I really loved what you did with sensation and perception. That was such a great lecture. I really enjoyed these elements of it. Would you mind if I encourage some of our grad students to come and see you? I'd love I'd love for them to come and see you teach this topic to get some ideas for their own class. And then I'll say, oh, you know, hey, have you thought about going to see so-and-so? They do this, hey, you know, for the graduate students who aren't clinical, right? My weakest area is teaching psych disorders. And so I have learned so much from going and observing the clinical right. grad students teach those topics. Um, mm-hmm. I, that's, something, that's something I would never. Um, and they bring their own, they bring, everybody brings their, something of themselves into their own class. And so, um, you know, I don't know that I could replicate that, but I certainly am inspired by that. And I think we can all be inspired by each other. So what a gift we have here at Ohio State with this program, right? This opportunity for all of these young professionals to be doing this thing at the same time in sort of the same way, and that we have so much support. We have these resources and support to help them be successful. Well, so you bring up this really good point about observing other people's teaching because even if you don't have a program like this at your You can do it anywhere. You could just go sit in on lectures. Do you know what I And it costs zero dollars to do that. I sat in on a lecture last year, and do you know what I realized? It was a uh, professor here who has a great reputation, and she was teaching an incredibly riveting topic related to human sexuality. Oh, I and bet I know who that I, person you, is. I'm sure you do. And do you know what was the main thing that I walked away from that class with was how hard it was for me to sit 
for 55 minutes and not get to talk. I was in like some physical pain. Wow. Because I wanted to interact with her because the things she was saying were so interesting. Yeah. And, and it was also awkward because I felt like I shouldn't talk because I'm not a student when she right. asked the class <laughs> questions. But it made me so sympathetic to my students who are hour after hour yeah. after hour All day long sitting and listening. That's right. And, I mean, some of them I'm sure don't want to interact, but some of them I'm sure really do. And isn't that funny that I've been teaching for 10 years and I had to be reminded that it for some people it's no fun to sit there. I am so glad you had that experience. And, you know, I think absolutely teaching, well, what we do in, as, you know, in higher education, it's extremely cognitively demanding. Yeah. And, you know, it's sort of like we are in a kiln ourselves. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, the temperature's turned up here. And you don't realize that because you're in it all the time. But it's very cognitively demanding what we do. And it's very hard to take the time and the space to just sort of give yourself the time to think about these things, right. right? I mean, because the pressure to do more and go do more, write more, um, work more, you know, that takes away from our ability to stop and be self-reflective in this way. And so um, it doesn't surprise me at all, really. I think, And I think that's an issue with teaching in general, too. It's because when you're teaching, you're up there at the front, and especially if you've got that feeling like this is my job to teach and right, you know bestow all, all the knowledge, all of the stuff I have to say, that's <laughs> cognitive load. Right. And doesn't that impact your ability in the moment to think about what signals are my students sending? Am I giving them time to think? Mm-hmm. Am I going so fast? Can they really put this all together? Um, and so just creating time even in class for students to talk. And in large classes, when you have students that are in big programs – Think about it. They could go all semester long and really never talk in any of their classes. Yeah, easily. I'm sure many do here. And when you think about diversity and inclusion and you think about the things that are going to help people to feel like part of a community and feel connected, and for students to have that opportunity to make information relevant to themselves and relatable, um, you know, I think we we need to carve out that space in our classes for students to engage as learners with one another. Yes. So, okay, so I have a sort of two-part question here. One is that we talked a little bit about the main issues that you try to help people resolve before the semester starts. So Mm -hmm. I want to know what are some of the main things that come up once the semester has started that you see needing to redirect people. And then the other one, which I think is a related question, which I know Jeff was really curious about, is is intro – the best class to learn how to teach the first time out. I think about that a lot. So um, do you want to explain why you think that or why you want to know that? Well, I think most graduate students assume a class as close to their specialization as possible is Mm -hmm. where they should start. So if you're a social psychologist, well, I should teach social psychology because I spent the most time thinking about that. And I frequently... And my own bias is that knowledge is a curse when it comes to teaching sometimes, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. So that when you're really deep in a field, it's hard to imagine what it's like to not know what you know. And so that theory of mind task becomes mm-hmm. difficult to get in to the heads of the, the, uh, the kids and think about, well, how do I explain this to somebody who doesn't know anything? Because you're so far from that point. Anyway, yep. this is just my yep. own bias, but... So maybe these are different questions. I don't know. So the things that come up during the semester. Let's start there. Yeah, okay. let's start there. Because there are some really predictable things okay. that come up during the semester. And 
I think a lot of it is classroom management. Mm-hmm. Figuring out how to manage the classroom, right? So yeah. even if you think through this great structure to your class and you think through these great assignments and you think through all of this, these great activities and demonstrations and great examples that you have all, you know, queued up and ready to go, then there's the practical reality of just implementation. And classroom management, I think, is is tough. Yeah. Um, because then there are always unknowns, right? So the classroom that you were planning on having gets switched at the last minute, or there's a student who just you know, is dis- distracting um, because they're asking questions all the time and they're right. hoarding all the attention and no one else can get a word in edgewise or you can't get anybody to say anything. It's crickets when you talk mm-hmm. or, um, you know, problems with people turning things in on time or this thing that you thought was going to work great isn't working at all and now it's kind of crashing and burning and you don't know what to do. So there's all of this, like, man, I I think that comes down to classroom management. Um, and I... I see a lot. I have a lot of conversations with people during the semester about how to handle those kinds of things. So having somebody who's like your resource or your go-to person and normalizing that conversation. Because, again, I think a lot of times if you're feeling kind of impostery, you think, oh, my God, it's just me. Right. It's just me. And I have to fix this terrible thing. And that is where I think I see the biggest problems with uh, instructors over the years is when they've encountered these problems that really I, I think are really common kinds of issues that come up. Um, really common issues that everybody experiences, but they think it's their, their first time or they think it's just them. They're doing something wrong. So they hide it. They don't want to talk to people. And, you know, things grow when they're behind our backs. And so, you know, problems just get worse. And then sometimes... They, they don't want to come and talk to me. They think it's going to be a problem. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, no, we could have – I could have given you two or three ideas or we could have worked on this several weeks ago. Don't worry about it. You know, you know just having somebody to, who has your back. I think you need – you need as a graduate student, you need to have somebody who has your back um, who can support you and help you and maybe sometimes dial you back a little bit. Be like, oh, okay, that's really intense. You know, maybe we can just be – let's have a little perspective. Let's think about all the reasons why the student isn't doing – the things that maybe you think they should be doing. Let's think of all the things that can be going on in the life of a student. Um, you know, and so you need some, but you also need somebody who can say, yeah, no, that's not okay. Let's think of a way that we can fix that. Right. So what I would add to that is that you need that your whole career. Amen. So this semester <laughs> I was teaching a research class where students were in groups and working on projects, and I was having some difficulty with one of the groups, and it wasn't that they were doing anything wrong. It was that we weren't connecting, my expectations were not connecting Mm. with how they were spending their class time. And I think that they were really trying and I was really trying and there was some sort of disconnect. And I ultimately went to a colleague to talk about this issue with, and I've been teaching for a while now. And she said, she said many helpful things, but the one that helped me the most seemed so obvious, which was remind them that you're on their side, which is to say, hey, we, I would love for you guys to get to the end of the semester having reached these goals, so how are we going to get there? And so instead of what felt like had become me versus the students was just this gentle reminder that, no, actually, I'm only here because I'm on your side. There right. is no other side. Right. And I want you I'm to succeed. I'm not trying to stop you from – Exactly. I'm trying to help you. Right, exactly. And to, it, it took me a while to seek out this advice. And so I can't even imagine what most graduate students – are going through so so do you have like 
any kind of regular check-in or would it help people to create that who didn't get to be a part of this program? I love that. I love that. That'd be great. You mean like a regular check-in with with the TAs? I don't know. I mean, I think, I guess you do because you are going into their classrooms, right? Well, I feel, I hope, I probably should check, I probably should check and make sure they under, they feel this way. But, you know, we have a couple of things working in our favor. So we have this peer leadership, the TA leadership, right? And so they're, they're TAs, they're grad students just like everybody else. So um, they're here in this office doing this job, and then they're also just in, Right. And other labs and with everybody else. So I feel like they're, they're, we say right up front, they're a resource. The TAs are a resource, right? And, you know, use your use your team. Right, right. <laughs> we have a team here. Right. So I think that there's a first line of defense, which is ask, ask one of the fellow TAs in the program. Um, and then oftentimes I think if I've done a if I've done my job and built that trust that they know, like you can come to me and I'm not going to be mad at you. I'm going to help you. Right. And we're going to brainstorm it together. At least I hope so. They hope they feel that way. And then I reach out to them before I come observe their class and I say, Hey, I want to come observe your class. Can you give me some dates? So I let them pick when I'm coming. And then I invite them to tell me beforehand, what am I going to see? What are some things you want me to look for? What are some things I should know? And then I go in and observe their class. And then we meet afterwards within two weeks. Um, of the observation and you know I'm like okay so how's it going what's here are some things I think we're working really well what's working for you do we need to talk to about anything is there any challenge here's some ideas for you and then um, I'll meet with everyone at the start of spring semester where we can kind of unpack their evaluations right because some people are going to get some evaluations and some students are probably going to say some things that hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, some people are going to be walking on air after they get those evaluations and some people are going to take a blow. And so we're going to talk a little bit about how to think through that and maybe how to, you know, what some goals might be for the coming semester. Um, so I try to, yes, and I, and we have a big office here, which we're really fortunate. And so the, there's a lot of reasons why they um, come in here from time to time. And so I try to just check in with people and know that they can that in terms of so in terms of formal check-ins we have formal check-ins we have informal check-ins and then we sort of have the peer network the peer mentoring network that goes on too if i had had someone like you to go through my first student evaluations that would have been so (laughs) nice right those are tough those can be tough tough to read and tough to understand is this is this valuable important feedback is this something that the student was going through that i could not have altered no matter what Mm -hmm. i did Mm -hmm. Wow, that's so interesting. So so you start in the summer mm-hmm. by helping them get everything organized. Then you're there constantly during I the, try to be. I want to be. I hope now, I, I am. Mean physically there, but I mean yeah. you are there for support. And then you even help them sort of decompress and reflect afterwards. That is my goal, yes. Okay, so what about this question about intro versus – Another so we class. have it. So we have a different model for social psychology. So the social psychology graduate students here, um, and I coordinate that course. So I have a role in curriculum assessment there. But there's actually a faculty member who does some teaching support with them. So it's a little bit different. So because I can't do this for all the classes, so I do a little bit with social, um, and then we have a, I have a colleague who does the observations and works with the instructors. Um, but they actually don't teach that class until after they have completed their master's in candidacy. So they're coming in. So I think that's what you're talking about. They're coming into that class at a much higher level um, of specialization in that, and to teach that area, to teach that topic. Um, 
they struggle with many of the same things, right? Too much content. Um, how do you make things clear and comprehensible? Um, right? Not loading too much stuff in there, lecturing too much and not giving students space to engage with and think about the material. I think they're sort of, they struggle with those things too. I think that's part of just beginning teaching. Um, so would you say it's no easier no, to teach? No, for I don't the first think time? it's no easier. Um, I do think you have a bit of more of the curse of knowledge there, right? Um, and that class, the social class, actually comes in two varieties. There's a writing intensive piece that's the gen ed course, and then there's the major program course, which is more traditional and it's a little bit larger. It tends to be, you know, just more of a traditional um, kind of typically lecture based um, course. But the writing course, we use a project-based learning approach. So that's part of what we teach them, too, in the summer is how you teach writing. So we have um, actually two writing courses, one in the abnormal clinical area and then one in the social psychology area. And so part of what we do is think about, okay, well, you're definitely going to have a writing assignment in your class. Here are some, here are some resources and things to think about in teaching writing. So, so for most graduate programs that don't have – anything like this I yes it's 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 frightening to me to think about and and I just actually gave a talk about this and the first half of the talk was all of the things that you have to do to be an effective college teacher right think about all the stuff you have to know how to do all of the issues that you have to deal with to be an effective college teacher and then really think about throwing somebody into that job with nothing right go I mean, but that's what most of us are doing. And I think it's, it's kind, it's just got to stop. It's got to stop. I mean, it devalues teaching. And I think it really just, if you think about what grad students are experiencing in their graduate programs, it's, it's not necessary. We don't have to, we don't have to put them through that. I mean, we know a lot about how to support people in being effective teachers. There's a whole literature on effective teaching. Um, you know, I just, I, unless you have a structure in place that has some supports for people, why on earth would you not want them to be effective in that role? And I also think we have to think about what's best for students, for undergraduate students. And I think we, we often base our decisions about who should teach a class based on their content knowledge. That's one tiny fraction mm -hmm. of what you need to be able to. It's a very important piece. I don't want to say that it's not important. It's hugely important. But it is not by far the only thing that you need to know how to do. And you can't teach everybody everything before they go into the classroom. You have to have some mentorship along the way because things come up, you know, and you have to figure out how how to handle things in the moment. You need some. You need the benefit of some guidance and perspective oftentimes again you just you what happens we throw you in a classroom you're in your little bubble mm -hmm. right and then what happens you you're figuring it all out for yourself you feel that all on yourself you know that's not why do, why do we want to put people in that situation why do we want a structure that encourages people doing all that in isolation it's right. not efficient it's not effective it's not i mean who is it good for i don't understand so are there any suggestions that you would have for people at other institutions that are 
considering that they might want to go for a teaching career or know that they want to go for a teaching career and don't have a program like this in place. So, for example, we mentioned simply attending people's lectures Absolutely. and contemplating Absolutely. what's effective and what's not effective or even learning about the latest technology that people might be using in classrooms. That's Are there right. other things? Find mentors. Find yeah. your mentors. Find your teaching people. And here is the thing. They may not be in your department. Mm-hmm. You may not have another teaching person in your department. You know where they might be? They might be at conferences. You might find them at other institutions. You might find them on social media. You might find them um, at a neighboring institution. You may find them in a different department. I have wonderful colleagues here. Actually, some of the colleagues that really sustain me and excite me about teaching are in economics and communications and other departments. I get great ideas from people who are not in psychology. Don't limit yourself to the walls of your department or the doors of your building, right? I mean, get Get, get, oh, my God, and teaching centers. Find your teaching center. You know, that should be A number one. Find your teaching center. And you know what? If you don't have a teaching center at your institution, go online because so many teaching centers put great resources out there. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I, I would say for any graduate student who might be listening to this, if you need to develop a teaching portfolio, go to Ohio State's University Center for the Advancement of Teaching website and look at the resources on teaching portfolios. They have the best in the country. It's fantastic. Um, so, you know, I think certainly just you need some mentorship. Find your mentors. Um, you know, we have a professional association, STP, Society for Teaching of, of Psychology. $15 for graduate students to join that. $15 is a free Facebook group that's a great source of resources and support. You know, just get out there. and do, You know, if you're not getting the support you need at home, there are plenty of people. Teaching people are some of the most generous support it because we love teaching right we love developing other people and so teaching people are some of the most generous with their time and resources and and this is the other thing I think when people go to a teaching conference and I I went to my first teaching conference and I was like what is this what is happening because you go to a like a research conference and it's all kind of intense and a little competitive right and it's all very there's a different tone but you go to a teaching conference and everybody's like hey what do you do oh here's what i do do you want these resources let's here let me let me give you some ideas let's give yes absolutely completely different um in my personal experience and i've heard other people say the same thing and so go you know go to a teaching conference or the teaching pre-conference of your professional conference right so like aps has a teaching pre-conference I've just presented there on this exact topic last year. (laughs) It was like, it was great. It was terrific. And so if you're there for the science, get something for your teaching as well. APA has a terrific line of programming now. Actually, I'm going to be the new director of um, STP programming at APA starting next year. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm super excited about it because what a great way. So you're there for APA. There's going to be a lot of teaching for, you know, resources for you. All of the regional conferences have STP teaching programming. Um, and, you know, I mean, I will say in, in the absolute, uh, you know, worst case scenario, if you are completely in isolation and your advisor, as many advisors are saying, don't waste your time on teaching. Right. And this comes from a place I know of good intentions. They want the best for their students and they firmly believe that the best outcome for their students is research driven. But it's harmful in the sense that it limits your options. Right, absolutely. And it limits your ability to develop those skills that are so important later on. Right. And so if in the worst case scenario, if you're there, you know, publishers are really – there's publishers and there's some free open source stuff too. 
that's, you know, you can certainly do some reading. There's lots of books out there on teaching. How Learning Works by Ambrose and colleagues is such a great book. Um, you know, look at your, inst- I, I'm actually doing a project now where we're looking at instructors' resource manuals to, to get a sense of what kind of content's going in there. And then last year, I actually did a project with some colleagues of mine who authored a textbook. And you know what's coming back is the annotated instructor's edition. And so what I did is I actually went through their textbook and I, I added in the margins little tips and resources. So ah. as you're planning your lecture, if you're, if you're doing this in complete isolation, right? right? See if there's an annotated instructor's edition for your textbook. So as you're planning and looking through the content, you can kind of get some sense of here's activities to do or ways to Somebody draw connections or, right. you know, resources that can help you. If this isn't like, if, if, sec- if gender and sexuality is not your area, okay, well, what are some, what are some ways that I can build my own competence? What are some ways that I can, you know, what are some resources or activities that I can bring into my class? And so, you know, using the resources maybe that come with your textbook, or if you're using open source resources, there's a, God, there's a network of people who can help you with that too. But just, you know, just know there's, there's help. Look for help. Don't think you have to do it all by yourself. So the part of the motivation for our career advice book, which is the motivation for this podcast, is this idea that oftentimes when you're in a PhD program or you're at a PhD granting institution, you are working with people who took the research career trajectory. Yes. And that they They just don't know know how to advise you. So I know that the people at Ohio State who are in your program are sort of particularly lucky and that generally people don't have this, but I was wondering if you could talk about how this has helped them go places. I know you write a lot of letters of recommendation. I do. And a lot of students are able to spin this opportunity to help them get these teaching jobs, which oftentimes require teaching experience, the ability to reflect on your teaching, some of these skills. So even if you're not at a school that has a program like this, it is worth doing what you're saying in terms of attending conferences and gathering these resources because it will help you get a job. So what have you seen in terms of people getting jobs after leaving your program? Well, I think there are a lot of diverse graduates and they go a lot of diverse places. And so, you know, I certainly see people going into industry and the same skills that have are effective in the classroom are effective in industry because what are you doing? If you're usually doing some kind of data science thing, you're usually translating some complicated ideas to a diverse audience of people, sometimes consumers, sometimes partners or corporate partners or maybe government partners, and you need to be able to help them understand and use this information. That is exactly what teaching is. There is nothing different about that. We are just taking science and we're helping students figure out how to use it for themselves. In the industry industry and other occupations, you're taking complex ideas helping people use it for some purpose and so there's no difference it's the same set of skills and do you know that from personal experience I do know that from personal experience because I spent 10 years in industry sometime in PR and then also in research consulting and so um, you know they didn't necessarily need really fancy analyses but what they needed help understanding is what are the implications here what does this mean for me how can I use this information give me some recommendations and then also helping them understand what it doesn't mean for them. You know, all oh, these means are different. That must mean I have to do this. No, actually it doesn't. And here's why. You know, here's how you should interpret this information. You know, anytime you take anytime you're comparing two groups, they're gonna be a little bit different, right? And so being able to convey that to people is important. And you know, the other thing is, um, I think it prepares you really well for lots of different things. Um, and certainly lots of different teaching contexts. Because the other thing I think we forget 
is R1s are just one kind of university, right? right? It's just, it's again, it's sort of like when you're when you're the top student, you think every student is like you. When you're at an R1, you think every university is like is like this one. And, um, you know, when you go out again and you start talking to people in other places and you start talking to people who are at the small liberal arts colleges and the, you know, regional comprehensives, which are more the undergraduate-focused kinds of institutions, they might have a master's program, but mainly they're giving bachelor's degrees. Um, or a community college, for God's sake. You know, right. some of the most important teaching that's happening in our country right yeah. now is happening in community colleges yes. and happening online. We need really good people doing that kind of teaching. We don't want to, you don't want to put, you know, you don't, you don't want to put that responsibility of teaching the people who really need it most, uh, you know, in the hands of people who are undertrained and underprepared, right? I mean, so we should really be training and preparing people for that important teaching. Um, and there's a lot of ways that you can really have a meaningful impact in a lot of different places. And it's important work, right? I mean, our society needs to be educated, we? We, and they need to understand psychology. We have so much to share. It's really important work. So I think just knowing all of the different places where you could engage in teaching in various ways and that you can mix and match things. Right. You know, I mean, this is the other thing. There has never been a better time to be entrepreneurial about how you mix and match your jobs. You can maybe do some adjunct teaching and some professional work. Some, you can, you know, consult your, be a consultant, you know, like figure out how to leverage what you know um, to issues that are important to you. You can make your own career. You don't have to be limited by other people's vision of what your career is, for God's sake. I mean, it's 21st century. Do what you want. So one of this this idea of kind of moving around and doing what you want is really specific also to my personal career mm -hmm. path, which is that I have taught at, I think, almost every type of institution that there is. And one of the things that I've learned is that what what has been most helpful for me in terms of starting the first semester somewhat successfully is by asking other people for their syllabi. Yeah. Because at each of these institutions, people would commonly have a particular type of syllabus policy that I wouldn't understand, but I would just implement. Yeah. And then later I would realize how it was important for that particular institution or for that particular population. So, for example... Uh, one of the institutions that I worked with, we had a lot of commuter students, and so people were much more lenient about late arrivals than I would have otherwise been, but it made sense for that population. And I saw that in syllabi because they had to have rules about late arrivals yeah. on exam days, for example. Here at Ohio State, two of the policies that I saw frequently when I came here were that uh, many people drop one exam score. And I realized after the fact that the reason for that is that you have so many students. It's very difficult to keep up with and confirm absences, yeah. hospitalizations, yeah. family crises. Yeah. And it's easier to just have sort of a general policy where they can drop an exam. Yeah. So that, because and you it's have more hundreds. inclusive. Yeah, it's more right. inclusive. That right. Um, and so I think that part of what we're talking about here is that there's this common way to prepare yourself for teaching, but then there's also this very institution-specific yes. situation. So yes. what do you think about that, or how, how should people oh. think about that? Thank you for raising that, because it's huge. I'm so glad that you brought that up. That's also embedded in our teaching class, too. And I think our the seminar and, and the teaching class starts really, really general, right, with, like, issues of broad course design and backwards design and, like, big-picture issues. And then by the end of the semester – 
our seminars are guests, and we're bringing in people from student advocacy who talk about their resources, and we're bringing in people from UCAT, mm-hmm. our teaching center, to talk about their resources, and we're bringing in pe- university partners to talk about our university context, our right, teaching context. Right. Because, and that is really important, and that is something that people almost never get when they're new to an institution, right? right? Because there's a certain institutional culture and there's very institution-specific policies and things. (laughs) And you almost need like a Sherpa. You need like a guide, right? You know, to like help you figure it out. One simple and very clear example of this, academic misconduct. Academic misconduct policies are wildly different across institutions and even within colleges here at Ohio State. So what is considered academic misconduct, say, in, you know, one college? College here, like say engineering, is not the same as we would consider wow. academic misconduct here in the College of Arts and Sciences, um, and so and we have and so our, the way that we have dealt with that is we have an impartial um, office, a panel of people that review cases and they wrestle with these ideas and they apply things in a consistent and fair ways. But other places say, if you think here's the guide, here's the code of student conduct, you make a determination yes, and apply a penalty and then just yes. notify us that that happened. The very, that's right. not at all what happens here. Um, also, again, what offices and resources, if, if we have a student here on campus that is in trouble, I can call up someone at student advocacy. They're basically like social workers that know how all the resources right. work and they can help students and advocate on their behalf if necessary, or just help, you know, kind of facilitate that conversation with instructors. I can call them up and they can help us figure out a situation. If you didn't have that resource on campus, who would you call? What would you do? If I was teaching in another place, I wouldn't, you know, there are a lot of questions that you have. And you may or may not get a handbook. You may or may not get resources. And there's another kind of curse of knowledge when you've been teaching at a place for a long time. You just forget, oh, that's oh, that's right. Somebody needs to know this. <laughs> I need to tell someone explicitly <laughs> this information. Um, and so I think we that's part of classroom management, too. It's like the, 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 the specific uh, – it's kind of like um, – like a neuron analogy, right? It's like what's actually happening at the receptor side, <laughs> like at that very yeah. con- when those things interact. Um, that's very different than some of the other systems. Well, and I would add that you can't tell from your institution what the reaction or the organization will be. So, I mm-hmm. the, with a very specific example, my experience at Ohio State is generally that there's a person for everything, and that <laughs> it's very well organized. However, there was an incident where I realized that. There wasn't a person for something, and I had expected there to be, and I screwed up. Oh. So that is that I had a student who was hospitalized and had a mental health emergency. Oh. And the student did email me, but I just assumed that student advocacy would let me know what I needed to do and would confirm that this was a real need. Because everywhere else that I have worked, student advocacy or some kind of equivalent confirms that people are in the hospital. Oh, but not unless the student went to student advocacy. The student did go to student advocacy, but they also told them that they had emailed the professor. And so student advocacy's response was, oh, well, you've already been in contact with the professor. We won't. But from my perspective, it kind of isn't completely legit until I hear from student advocacy. So this student was in a real emergency, and I did not respond with the compassion that I wish I had Mm. because I had this expectation of what would have happened. Do you know what I mean? I do. Um, But on the flip side, something that's been fantastic at Ohio State has been this academic misconduct issue Mm. 
because you report it and you do not have to determine nope. what the consequences are. But mm. I have worked at institutions where I had to determine the consequences. And how do I know what is fair or being applied? In so my so one professor could decide that the same yeah. transgression it means you fail a class, That's and right. another professor could mean it could mean you fail just the assignment. That's right. Um, and so you know this it's it's just so it's interesting to me because. I think that you have no idea until you have somebody explain or you seek out the individual resources for each of these particular issues what's going to happen at your specific institution. You have to know. Yeah. And even and as you point out even within an institution it can be different. And so, right. you know, I I'm surprised that they didn't email you cuz I've had that experience where they would email me. So, again, right. you know, things happen. Right. Um so there can be these points of inconsistency. Even in departments, there can be points of inconsistency. Um, but knowing your environment and knowing who to contact and feeling that you can reach out and talk to people, that you have the that, – that there is somebody who's willing to listen to you. Yes. Like, if I was a jerk, right? I mean, I hope I'm not. But if I was a <laughs> jerk uh, and, you know – people didn't want to come and talk to me it's not really great to have somebody in this role right if nobody wants to come and talk to me if I can't help with problems um, you could have a person that nobody wants to talk to um, so it's not just having a person in that role it's having having someone that you know is effective in that role right right so um, I only have sort of a couple other questions that I have. I don't know if you want to jump in or if you had something else that you wanted to add. But mm-hmm. I'm sort of interested in big picture where you see this going. So like what would you, if you could add to this program, if you could uh, have multiple sites that had programs mm-hmm. like this, if you could do anything that you wanted to to oh. fill this need, what would it be? I have so many dreams. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear them. What I would love to see more broadly, not just at Ohio State, you know, because, again, who mentors the mentor? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm doing the best job that I can. Right. But, boy, I would love a network of people who are similarly doing the kind of work that I'm doing so that we could learn from each other. Um, and I would love to have sort of a, a, a mentorship program for teaching mentors so that we could – have more mentors across the country at all these graduate programs where we could have ambassadors for teaching right at every and where there's a graduate program there's somebody there who's going to be the person and not just the person right because another thing that we see is that if if teaching is all loaded if the teaching mentoring teaching training is just rests on the shoulders of one person when that person leaves it dies um, and a few years ago, I worked with some colleagues, and we did uh, an update of the Guide to Graduate Training Programs in Psychology through STP. They have free ebooks. This was one of their free ebooks. And we started by going back to the people who had reported on their programs. So basically, people who had training programs wrote little synopses of what their training programs involved, right? So you could learn from what other people are doing. This is out there. It's the Guide to Graduate Training Programs. It's on the STP website. Bill Buskis did the first one, he and his colleagues, and then we did the second edition. And we went back to the people that had been in Bill's first edition, and half of them were gone. Wow. And we said, who is doing it now? And they're like, nobody. Wow, yeah. But then there were new programs and new people doing things. But, you know, if you go to Auburn now, Bill Buskis is retired. You know what they're doing in Auburn now? What? Nothing. 
So, well, I shouldn't say nothing. I'm sorry, Auburn. I don't know. <laughs> I should say I don't know. But I know they're not doing what right. Bill was doing. Sure. And so, um, you know, I think it, it, you're, you don't want just one teaching person, but you need at least one teaching person. And then you need to have – that's why I want some mentoring because I want to know what helps you gain traction. Right. What can we do? You know, because here's the other thing. I feel like we have had great success because I'm sort of able to – work with our teaching center and work with other teaching professionals and I can kind of get things in to the training program without asking too much of their time, too much more of their time, right? And so um, students are getting funding for teaching, right? So that's important and their faculty respect that. And so I can use this opportunity to help, you know, build teaching skills and kind of get the good stuff in there. Like sneaking the spinach in the brownies, you know, <laughs> sneaking the carrots in there somewhere um, so that it doesn't feel like I'm derailing. Because I, 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 I think legitimately, and some faculty members have said to me, um, well, teaching is a distraction, you know. Uh, it's a time it's a time draw away from other things that are going to help them get a job. It's a time draw away from their research. Or um, teaching is, so, th- this was just said to me like last week, Teaching is just so positively reinforcing. What, what, I don't even understand what that's supposed it's to mean. Dangerous. Yeah, it's dangerous. Oh. It's dangerous because <laughs> it's so immediately positively reinforcing what? that it it you it draws your attention and your time away from oh, research, which takes longer oh, to get to the rewards. Okay, and so. <laughs> that's that's the kind of objections that I have to address, right? Because we all want what's best for students. We all want what's best for our grad students. And I also want what's best for our undergraduate students. Correct. So, but I you have to always think about the ecosystem. But getting back, so, so I would love to have a network of people whose job, like mine, is right. to help support our graduate instructors and support teaching of undergrad or undergraduate um, students and I would love to you know continue to work on these things because it's always a work in progress and I have a lot to learn um I, I think having a growth mindset for teaching is really important I never feel like I know everything I always feel like there's something more to learn um but I think we I'd love to see more people kind of coming in and trying to fill those cracks you know and try to get the good stuff in yeah okay so so this I um what is the difference to you between working with graduate students and undergrads? So you are reflecting on mm-hmm. the classroom experience yeah. for, from different perspectives, yeah. from undergraduate students and graduate students. And one of the things that's funny is that some of these graduate students were undergrads like three months ago, yes. right? Well, so are you not quite that. <laughs> no. Oh, okay. They have to. Here, I should also say, they would not even be eligible to teach until their second year, and okay. they're usually in their third year. So okay. we never put anyone in the classroom in their first year of graduate school, okay. which is crazy. That is crazy. Wait, it's um, crazy to do. Yeah. Okay. It's crazy to force someone who's been in grad school for like a minute to teach a class. And I have heard many, many times, even some departments here on campus and other places and other quarters, that you, you come to campus, you're here for a day, and you get a teaching assignment. I mean, that's just – that Absurd. does seem rough, but some people think it's crazy to have graduate students teaching at all. I know, right? So, what's the argument against that? That you're that you're preparing them and that they're 
go through this really good training program that you offer? I think it is absurd to put anyone in a position of teaching that hasn't had training and support. Yeah, yeah. It's absurd to me. Um, and I think graduate school is actually the perfect opportunity to learn this professional skill, right? I mean, when is a better time to learn it? Right. When you're a faculty member? Because that's the equivalent. You show up on campus, you've been there for a week, and now you're teaching not just one class, but three classes. Right. That's absurd to me. So why wouldn't we give you a chance to develop that skill at a time in graduate school when you're developing all these skills? Now, I can see where people have different issues with different kinds of models and how you scaffold it in and things like that. I'm not saying that we have the perfect model. I think we have a model that I'm happy with. I think it works. I think the evidence speaks for itself. You know, they give a teaching award here at Ohio State, and they recognize 10 graduate students, 10 across this entire university out of two or 3,000 graduate instructors. And every single year that award has been offered, someone from psychology has won that award. Wow, congratulations. That's a testament to your program, obviously. It's a fertile field, right? Yeah. I mean, we don't put people in the classroom who are not prepared and equipped to do it. And I think that is, and thank you, I appreciate that, and I'm very very proud of that yeah. track record. I'm very proud of this program. I'm proud of these grad students. They work really hard. Uh, and so I think it certainly, you said they can, I always view those grad students as colleagues. From the minute we start working together in that teaching class, you're not a student. You're my colleague. I'm going to treat you like my professional colleague. I'm going to give you the resources that you need to be successful in this important work. And I'm going to share whatever resources and experience I have that can help you be successful. So That's a mindset that I think is really important. I don't You don't think about the grad student teachers as students. You think about them as your colleagues that you want to help to be successful. And I think increasingly I'm thinking of students that way too. You know, I, don't want, I want to think about students who are very smart and capable and competent students. And I just want to give them the space and the resources to be able to, to use this information and to be successful. Right. Not because I'm telling them to do something and they're meeting my expectations. I want them to go beyond my expectations. I think that you and I share an impression that there, when there are institutions or individuals who really frown on the idea of graduate students teaching or the idea of I'm not going to send my child to school if they're going to be taught by a graduate student, I think that what that misses is that a lot of what helps a student learn is passion and energy level yes. and all these things that a graduate student could do just as well if not better than a faculty member who's also dealing with writing grants and overseeing their own graduate students and That's running right. a lab and all of this stuff. And if you're a parent, what, would, what experience would you rather have for your student? Would you rather that your child was in a class of 50 people where they would have a chance to talk to one another and talk to that instructor, that instructor would know them by name, or would you rather that your student was in a 300-person lecture with a faculty member that will never know who they are and they'll only take multiple choice exams and they'll never talk to anyone? So it's a trade-off, right? Right. But is world famous. I mean, in a lot of those situations, the analogy is, well, the 300-person professor classroom is taught by a professor who is a winner of the National Academy of Science Awards and Maybe. things like that. And yeah. so the, the idea is... Well, I want my kid to learn from the expert, but I think what you're, which is totally valid, and I understand that. I think what what that's missing is that content is a part of is a part of it. Is content sort of is a saying. part of it. Yeah, content is a part or of it. Or only a part of it, I should be saying. Content is only yeah. Content is a part of it. Um, other things are equally important, and it's an introductory class. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's a foundations class. Right. So. 
um, you know, maybe, uh, you know, they'll be inspired to go on and take some of those other classes with some of those other folks after that. But I think getting that foundation from somebody, and the other thing that you shouldn't forget too is because graduate students have been students recently, they're very empathetic. Yes. They really understand what it's like because they've been in those seats very recently. And sometimes there's, as graduate students, they might, it's, it's kind of funny, it's happened on more than one occasion where the graduate student would be sitting in a class taught by, you know, a graduate class, and then get up and walk to the front of the room, and their students come in, and uh-huh. they're teaching the class yeah. in the same room the next period, right? right? So you're going back and forth between these roles, and it's actually, I mean, thinking of, like, critical periods, right? It's a great opportunity. Right. It's a great period where you're really close to the experience of being both the teacher and the student, and I, and I think that's really valuable in terms of shaping how you approach this task with empathy, um, intellectual curiosity, um, you know, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of benefits to it. So, I don't think we should be dismissive. I certainly don't think that we should um, look down on graduate student teaching. I think some of the some really impressive teaching happens from with graduate students. Yeah, there I have had quite a few students in upper level classes here at Ohio State say, "I switched my major because I had this great intro professor," and it was actually a graduate, a graduate student, student who That's was right. energetic and a model. Yes. A model for what they can do if they pursue this career. Right, absolutely. You know, they're they're just so interestingly less stuck in their ways that I think they can be so much more compassionate and see things that we don't see. I had an experience where I had to have I started at a liberal arts school and the liberal arts school prided themselves on first generation college students. And it was a population that I wasn't a part of when I was an undergrad. And so I had blinders on to what was going on with these students. And my department chair had to say I was assigning too much reading because a lot of these students had jobs. Hmm. And I – that was over my head because of my personally – I didn't work when I was an undergrad. And so I just had blinders on to their situation. And I think that the longer sometimes that we're in the field, the more we can lose touch potentially. I mean, hopefully we grow and expand our viewpoint. But I think that graduate students could potentially be much more open to what undergrads are going through. And that's part of what we encourage too is we encourage – them to, to don't make assumptions about their students, right? right? Like learn, and you're like, well, I don't know anything about teaching, so okay. <laughs> Look at it as a learning experience, right? What can you learn? Um, you know, and I think that is that does help with that growth mindset. But that's also, I think, that to me is more evidence that we need more teaching mentorship throughout your yes. teaching career, right? Because you always need somebody to help you kind of – go back to that let's question those assumptions or think about it and I think we just we sorely lack mentorship in teaching um, at higher levels and there's again that's the arc of your career right so you start out um, early career just trying to get your get your head around teaching and then mid-career you're sort of digging down drilling down into specific teaching techniques really learning how to get better at doing certain things, right? So getting better at project-based learning or right. research mentoring or, you know, these these new kinds of ways of teaching and drilling down into them. And then you sort of progress in the senior career. A lot of people are thinking about their legacy or they're thinking about these really big-picture kinds of issues, yeah. you know, these really broad, high-level kinds of things. And so, you know, at every single stage, you're different. Um, 
not that it's the stage or continuous, but it's just, you know, at every single, as you move along your teaching career and you gain this experience, you're different and you need people to help you at every stage, maybe with slightly different things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've been a mentor for me, Missy. Aww. I'm so grateful for this conversation. I don't want to hog the microphone here if Jeff has something to add. Okay. Let me add, let me ask you one last <laughs> question. Can I ask you one more question? Thank you, Ashley. Um, I'm wondering if you have an anecdote or an experience that about why you like teaching so much. So I can think of sort of interactions with individual students that will make me cry if I had to talk about them right now. And I'm yeah. wondering if you want to share something about why this is a really good thing to do, why teaching is so great. There's one that's just really top of mind for me, so okay. that's the one I'm going to go with. But I, we could probably have a whole other sure. <laughs> podcast just about this. If we wanted to cry all day, we could. I know. <laughs> I'm actually going to talk about my teacher, several teachers. And when I was an undergraduate here at Ohio State University in the 80s, I went through some very difficult personal times. Mm-hmm. And I had been very successful as a as an under as a high school student. I had come into Ohio State with lots of accolades, and you know I had a very promising um, start. And then things personally started falling apart. My grades started falling apart, and I left here uh, at the end of my freshman year with no place to call home, and with. Uh, you know, a very frightening future ahead. And uh, I had a, I didn't really like my intro psych class and that was my intended major. So I felt like, um, you know, that was going to be, I was going to, if I came back to school at all, um, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I almost didn't come back to school. As a matter of fact, my college roommate got me over the summer and she said, you're coming back to school. And she sent me a plane ticket. And if she hadn't done that, I might not have come back at all. But that's a whole other story. Um, But when I did come back, some very important things happened. First, I had applied for a work-study position in a research, and I applied for a work-study position, and I got a position in a research lab, in Rich Petty's research lab, as a matter of fact. And one of the grad students hired me to be a research assistant. Didn't have to hire me. And if you would have looked at many, uh, you know, things about me at the time, you probably would have been like, I am not letting that, I'm not letting that girl come within 100 feet of my lab. (laughs) But they hired me. They gave me a chance. And that changed everything mm. because I didn't like my intro psych class, but I loved that social psychology research. I couldn't get enough of it. And that turned into taking research credits and taking social psychology classes. And that turned into a mentoring, a mentoring relationship with a graduate student who changed everything for me. And that got me connected with um, a faculty member who I just actually found out I didn't know this. One of the most important classes in my undergraduate career was the first class he ever taught here at Ohio State. Oh, wow. He must have been amazing right out of the gate. He was. And it was that research lab, the one that you just finished teaching oh that gosh. ends with a, like a big That's poster session. That's a hard class to teach. And that class was everything for me. And, you know, and the time that people took with me and he wrote me a letter for grad. He sat with me and talked to me about where I should apply to grad school. And if you looked at my transcript, you would have been like, I don't know if she could do it. He never seemed to question that I could. Wow. He always encouraged me. He wrote me a letter. I mean, he helped me 
and my group write a poster that we took to APA. I had an APA poster uh, in my senior year. I would never have gone to grad school. And so I think about, I think about those experiences all the time. I think about those teachers. And I think about the way that my life could have gone so very differently. Yeah. And I think, I'm going to cry. I'm going to cry. We're all going to cry. You know, (laughs) that is the opportunity that we have with our students. That is why we do this, right? And not just for the ones who look great on paper and who are like spectacular rock star students. It's the ones who need us. Yeah. The ones whose life will be very different without us. And, you know, just think of the exponential effect of this program, right? So all of these grad students that go on to teach all of these students and all of that, and hopefully then they carry these messages with them. Right. You know, it's one, I think, of just great, great opportunity and great hope um, that, you know, we can not only positively affect the trajectory of people's lives, but then just the message that we have to share as psychologists about um, resilience and about critical thinking and, you know, the ways that we can help them to be successful. And that's why intro psych is such a good, just a range of things that we can share with people. Like, my gosh, there's so many ways that we can improve people's lives and experiences. So, so when you ask me why I teach, it's because of those gifts that were given to me. Oh, that's so beautiful, Missy. There's no other way to end this podcast. Thank you. Thank well, you thank for you talking so much. to us. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. <laughs> <laughs>